This episode is supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have conversations with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. If you're hearing this podcast, we all survived 2021, so cheers to you and onward. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Schneider, and his goal is to build more housing together and make homeownership affordable while doing it. Sam is the co-founder of Homestead, which helps homeowners get the most out of their property. Homestead says that in 2019, the best way to do that was by adding an ADU, and in 2022, the best way, in California at least, is through Senate Bill 9, also known as SB 9. Their goal is to provide homeowners with a clear path to financial stability while empowering them to help solve California's housing crisis. I have to thank previous guest Ian Janicki in episode 46 for the introduction to Sam, so thanks Ian. In this episode, Sam and I talk about his experience at MIT's Graduate School of Architecture and City Planning and where his interests lie, how he fared in traditional practice, how Homestead began in the ADU space and has changed recently because of SB9, what architects need to understand about people and clients and how they think about spending money, how technology plays a role in Homestead's offerings, how they offer space as a product, and much more. So without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging conversation with Samuel Schneider. Sam, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here and meet you. Evan, it's a pleasure to be here. No better way to spend a Friday than talking about <laughs> architecture or the lack thereof. Right. <laughs> okay. I wanted to ask you about your, you know, as I do with with quite a few of the guests who come onto the podcast, how did you get to where you got? And I think, you know, kind of that origin story is yours is, you're going to say a lot of nice little button pushing kind of things right now. So that's that's what I want to focus in on. So maybe take us back to when you were a child and you know a lot of architects quote unquote started off playing with legos but yours might yours might be a little different than that oh no i mean that's the case for me as well i built legos room size lego installations as a very spoiled child and i had narratives for each of the people who lived in these houses i was very interested in color accuracy so that all the facades were the same color which is very important to me and i hated the lego kits because they couldn't build the sort of size of buildings but i think Legos and architects are a well-trod path, so we'll move past that. Okay. Uh, I was obsessed with construction and sort of building authorship, and I think a way that everyone is who goes to architecture school, maybe not the construction as much. I would spend a lot of part of my childhood watching construction sites, much to the disdain of my mother who drove me there very kindly, or the housekeeper or teenage babysitter who would sort of indulge the passions of five-year-old Sam. I was very lucky or... (laughs) unlucky to work at a relatively prestigious architecture firm in high school as a summer intern, which of course, in the traditional architecture profession, I got through nepotism, not through uh, any sort of great talent. And I was floored 
by what a miserable experience it was. I was stunned that people who are so talented would work so hard to see so little of their work realized. You know, three people working on a $20 million home in Malibu and it's just being miserable. I mean, they're making so little money and the person would have bad taste and ruin these great design plans. And that was fine because they're paying the money. Um, and so I came from parents who are not architects and they had really good lives. They got to do what they wanted on the weekends and, you know, they didn't sort of answer to these, your client is sort of an iconoclastic figure where they're a business or a person. I didn't have to answer to one person all the time. And so I decided not to become an architect. I really pursued a path towards finance in college. And I, on the side, studied history because I was very interested in it, especially historical theory. And I was missing humanities classes that I needed to graduate. So my final semester of my senior year, I took an architectural history class and I was just, it was like mana from heaven. There's nothing more joyful. And I realized that I wanted to become an architect again. I had a job in finance lined up and I quit it. And I went to Harvard's career discovery program. It was a wonderful experience. I spent the next two years working part-time, getting a job at architecture firm. I didn't agree, finally, this time on my own merits, or didn't uh, deserve. Applying to MIT, getting in, one of the few people without an architecture background, and going to school there. And I ignored some warning signs working at another fancy firm in New York, but this time, you know, as a designer myself, about the profession because I was so excited to be building and creating things in the world. I think what motivates us is to create beautiful things that house people. And I was also, you know, every architect, I think, is interested in affordable housing. It's very funny because architects actually have very little effect on affordable housing. Like, we we can make it much more beautiful, but whether it exists or not has very little to do with architecture. And yet we all spend our lives, I think, as good people, wanting more of it. And... As I was at MIT, I realized that I really wasn't cut out to be a traditional architect. I hadn't been indoctrinated for the four to eight years that people had through work and undergraduate. And I just didn't understand why people at the most prestigious universe in the world, I mean, give or take. You can claim that because you went there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was not a good student. I just want to say apologies to the MIT administration and everyone who worked with me would work so hard to work for someone else to build either very expensive things for companies that didn't care about design at all or get paid nothing and work for iconoclastic architects in the hope that they would one day start their own architecture firm at the same time because MIT was full scholar almost full scholarship which is incredible very unusual for architecture grad schools it meant that the students often didn't have what you actually need to start your own architecture firm, which is access to clients. And the part I liked, and and please do cut me off if I'm going on too long. The no, part, no. This is what this podcast is all about. <laughs> it's about these digressions and these tangents. Yeah. The part I liked the most about architecture school was the part where you talk about your program and you, of course, change it because no one, when you're assigned something, no one does what they're supposed to do. And they imagine the uses in their building. And working with architects, they're very smart, at least the ones I've been with. And those talents are very focused into sort of walls, right? Materials, coordination. Um, But they're much broader than that. And essentially, I realized every architect is a storyteller and a developer, but their storytelling is limited by 
a client that approaches them mm-hmm. um, or dollars down the road. So you can have the story, land the job, and then all of a sudden the person realizes they don't want to spend $3 million on a house where every neighbor, you know, a neighborhood where every house is, you know, one third the construction price. And so that story gets diluted. And so I was super interested in sort of figuring out a way to combine the dreams of architecture, which are affordable housing and being able to tell a story and having my own authorship. And that seems difficult. So I'll, I'll pause here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, the, to me, this is a very practical kind of wake up call as far as what the current state of a lot of people's reality is, which is, and I think this is something that's been coming up on the show is this similar idea of we're in so deep we don't take that step back to actually survey the landscape to say is this what we actually signed up for is this what we want it to be in the future is this even on the path to becoming what we want it to be in the future i I see there's a real lack of that awareness that self-awareness in the profession a lot of people are just kind of like going along with it because that's the way it's always been you know that's the fine the most dangerous thing said in an office is like, let's continue to do it this way because that's the way we've always done it. But at the macro level, that's exactly what's happening inside the profession. And I think that's also the thing that scares me the most. I had a conversation with Andrea Kajokaru, who's a, a, she has an office of coding architects and, and basically her point of view was like, I don't care if architects get on on board with this or not. Like, this is what we're doing because this is our vision for the future, very aware of where they want to to head. And so for me, it's a, it's a bit refreshing, even if it sounds a bit controversial for you to say this stuff, because it, to me, does show that you have a sense of self-awareness and you've had it since you interned in high school to be like, holy crap, do you guys see how you're actually dedicating your life to this unsustainable way of practicing business yeah i mean imagine any other job where you spent eight years to go to school or seven and they paid you seventy thousand dollars a year to work 12 hours a week and your project would continuously change all the time and (laughs) it's it's out of context it's a nightmare i mean there's some joy in authorship i again always wanted to be an architect but it's madness i think look this is a societal wake-up too everyone after covid is really rethinking their relationship to their job what's important and it took people a year but you know does it take architects the entire lifetime i don't know it's it is a a profession that is well known for being late to the adoption party at least when when it comes to things like that so changing the way that an industry thinks i i even wonder if it's possible or if you just kind of have to start something else on the side which i think leads to maybe where you're going that says we're we're going to invent something new that makes the other version obsolete and that i mean that goes way back that goes back to like buckminster fuller kind of quotes and stuff you know it's like you can't you can't it's so embedded and so ingrained there is no way to change it you actually just have to invent something new that makes it obsolete yeah and i am so lucky that i went to mit which gives free money for people to start businesses regardless if you're in architecture school or you're an art student there aren't that many of those 
MIT will give you about $5,000 to start a business. You have to write an application, whatever, but it's pretty much free money. And they'll give you courses as well. And you don't have to like register for a class. It's sort of extracurricular activity. And I went there trying to get money to start an architecture firm. So I was still slightly indoctrinated. I had two incredible friends, Hugh, who's a a Fulbright scholar, and then um, Sean, my current business partner who graduated the top of their class. I was, of course, at the bottom. And we're like, okay, we're going to make our own architecture firm. We're not going to work for people. We're tired of working for people. We're going to figure out how to make our own client, essentially. And so we went through this whole training, and we figured out that basically the only way to make your own client is to control capital. But no one was going to give us capital because we were 30-year-old people with no background. I mean, I theoretically have a background in finance, but it's long gone. Or now it's back in this new business, but then it was long gone. Who's going to give us millions of dollars to build anything? Especially when we didn't want to build anything that was, you know, really cheap developer-grade stuff. We wanted to make something in the world. And we did want to work on bigger social issues. And so our first idea was like, okay, we have to find land value that's not used and use that as a catalyst to create money because we're not going to find you know random rich people with money to build affordable housing or whatever and so we found we came up through a lot of like talking and getting feedback with the idea of working with nonprofits that had very valuable land and very uh low revenue or sort of not a big organization to redevelop their land with them share some of the income use it to create affordable housing this is big big idea here for little little guys, and then increase the uh, operating budget for their organization. And we kind of came to this idea where we were in Central Square in Cambridge, right next to the MIT campus, and there was a 30-story tower, like $500 million project going up on this plot of land. And across the street, there was a Salvation Army on the same size plot of land. And we're like, wait a minute, this Salvation Army no store frontage, like dingy, awful space is in this area where there's literally a billion dollar pharmaceutical campus by MyLN, another pharmaceutical campus by Novartis and this huge tower. And there's this Salvation Army sitting here and the Salvation Army is barely making ends meet because we did some, you know, client investigation. Why don't... Untapped potential here, I'm sensing. Exactly. Why don't we create our own affordable housing complex using this land? That's essentially free if they give it to us. I mean, not to us, but to share the process with. And so it was an incredible business idea, and I still maintain that it is. It also helps that nonprofit data is widely available. So guys, uh, anyone listening, if you want to start this business, it's still a great business. Problem was, we were just leaving architecture school, didn't have a lot of money, and nonprofits won't pay you. So we're looking at years before we were ever paid. And no, although I I think it's still a good business idea that you could get a loan on if you were more experienced, uh, no one was going to lend students money to live for three or four years to one of these development projects paid off. Interesting. Interesting. So that, where did that lead? I mean, that obviously that idea didn't die there. I mean, maybe at that scale or that typology, I mean, it's still not dead. You're still saying this is still a fantastic idea, but that led you down a different path, I think, right? I mean, this gets back to this affordable housing idea. Yeah. So we didn't just end there. We actually worked with a few nonprofit organizations. Like we would get on the phone, we'd call them and we'd say, hey, we're trying to start a business and we're just interviewing people about their pain points and their needs for their organization. 
And, you know, 20 minutes later, they'd be like, actually, what you're doing sounds great. Why don't you come out? So if you're ever looking for a client, just call them asking for advice or something about their land, and then you might end up with a client. And you mean instead of waiting for them to come to you like that? (laughs) We see a lot of architects doing that, right? Like, just I guess I'm going to wait here until they they call or knock on the door. Advertising works. Um, Even better than advertising, though, is advertising where people don't know that you're advertising. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we worked a few organizations. Um, The dream did not end there. We were seeing the issue. We worked on this um, nonprofit competition that's kind of well-known in Boston. A bunch of architecture schools in there participate in it, where if you win the affordable housing challenge, you get to be participate in the actual affordable building of the project. And so we worked on a project in Martha's Vineyard. They asked for 78 affordable housing units. We designed 78 affordable housing units. And when we did this, it's not just the design, it's the pro forma, it's the LIHTC credits, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. And we got the credit stuff and all that, but the community just wasn't interested, which is funny because they brought us out there for the affordable housing. They said, it's too big. It changes the character of the community. And let me tell you, this was in the middle of the woods in Martha's Vineyard. Like it was near the city, but you know, you wouldn't notice it. They said this traffic was going to be an issue. Traffic's already an issue because of all the rich people coming on the ferry once a week. And I realized like, oh, this isn't a Martha's Vineyard problem, right? This is a problem we face across the country. The way local planning laws work, you're not going to be able to push through big projects at any sort of scale. It's a huge endeavor. Especially when it's so different, right? Like this is a total NIMBY issue. Yeah, exactly. And so as we were starting to lose faith a little bit, but still the business was going along fine, an amazing opportunity. I don't know if it happened or we realized that it it wasn't a venture scale or business opportunity. In 2017, about a year before we graduated, many of the listeners in the podcast, I'm sure are familiar. California passed a law that allowed every single family home uh, to add a second unit. So in theory, partially banning single family housing. And you guys, of course, know them as ADUs, additional dwelling unit, the second unit of housing. And so this created, in theory, a trillion dollar opportunity where you could build new housing without acquiring land. And so we were ecstatic about this. And we we're like, this is going to solve all the problems, which is why the law, it's, this is not our idea, right? This is why the lawmakers started ADUs. It's like, okay, we'll get around NIMBYism by making every homeowner an advocate for these things. And also no one can complain if people live in tiny sheds in the backyard. And so we're like, okay, but if someone is going to have someone live in their backyard, they're probably not going to be very wealthy or, you know, have the ability to build one of these units. And that's played out to date. Most of the people who build these units are relatively wealthy and don't, don't need the secondary income. And we'll get to that in a second. So we're like, okay, we'll create some sort of income share where we'll find the financing to build the units on the homeowners who need that income's house. And they will get a share of the income and we'll get a share and pay back our investment. But the reality of the situation in America is that, you know, everything does run on money. And if it isn't NIMBYism, then it is money. And the financing costs for these homeowners, because they're essentially redlined because of racism and, you know, low incomes, etc., wasn't going to be low interest enough with the lower rents in their communities to make them a lot of money and make us enough money to put the money up front. And so we just focused on building ADUs 
towards that client type and introducing guaranteed pricing into construction architecture, which, oh my gosh, if you want to talk about financial mistakes early on, was a real learning process. Interesting. And, and so why, why was that such an interesting learning process right there? I mean, is it, is it because of just the productization nature? Because I, in the commercial realm, I mean, the guaranteed maximum pricing is super attractive for anybody who wants to do a project at that scale. And I assume it's obviously we're talking about much different budget numbers, but why did you, why, why was this so eye opening? Well, it just shows everything that's broken in construction today. So we did something that startups do when they're not dealing with $100,000 products, which is we said, we want this to exist in the world. Like the reason there's problems with architecture is that things run over budget. I mean, that's not the re- one of the big reasons or issues with architecture construction is that the projects run over budget. And it's because you have this divorced sort of hydra. We have a developer and architect engineers plans that always changes over and over again. We're like, we can fix this in single family housing because there are no rules pricing is pretty out there and consistent and we'll just learn enough about pricing to build these units. And what we learned very quickly is that homeowners don't want to actually know the price of what they're going to pay for, or if they do, it's staggering to them and they don't move forward with the project because they're the way most home improvement or let's call them residential architecture sales go is that the homeowner is given a price that is literally unbelievable, whether it's by an architect or a contractor. They latch onto that price. Uh, The plans move forward, and then the architect... And i got to say, this is one of the most either naive or disingenuous parts about like building the residential space. Comes back and it's like, oh no, actually, this project's more expensive, but we can cut some things out and get it to a reasonable place. And so that process happens. And then, of course, the vision is getting diluted already. And then, of course, that price isn't realistic either. And so this scope and budget creep, which we're all familiar with, gets the homeowner to a place where they get something. It's better than what they had. So they don't, you know, try and literally murder you. They don't want to admit that they spent a lot of money on a product they don't like that much. So, or not, you know, it doesn't fulfill their dreams. So you luckily won't get a bad review and they will lie to their friends about how much it costs. We've seen this in our referrals. They will straight up tell the original price because we've done enough projects. Now we know to their friends. (laughs) So you'll still get referrals. Yeah. It's, it's self-justification. Also, no one keeps track once they like, no one keeps track of the dollars. It's like dramatic. And so we also didn't realize the extent to which contractors underbid. We knew, based on architecture firm, you're supposed to do a 12% cost overrun. It's 50%, by the way, anyone listening. And so we guaranteed the pricing to homeowners and paid quite a bit out of pocket for our first few projects. But it was also a really good forcing function because we were literally forced to make ends meet to learn how much things cost. If you think about how architecture firms are set up today, there's no incentive incentive for them to actually figure out how much anything costs. So we're just creating this sort of toxic cycle where no one knows anything, but everyone knows something and things are out of control price-wise. And so we did figure that out and we finally created a product niche, which is adding these second units of housing. It's a guaranteed price. We did a lot of design standardization, you know, the grasshopper world brought in some really, you know, Got all our material pricing hooked into Revit. 
uh, and started to spit these out. And we've sold about 77 to date. We've built 10, 17 are underway. It was a great learning experience. And I, I highly recommend thinking about a design build form where you force yourself to think about pricing and starting to sell homeowners on the reality of what they're doing. So when they get a loan, they're not paying out of pocket. You're not significantly changing their lifestyle and livelihood, which I think architects don't think about. Certainly contractors don't. And you stay true to your word. There's no like wavering. There's no awkward moment where you're like, oh, well, actually, there aren't well actuallys. Now, there are things that go wrong. and Homeowners change products of their change orders, but that's because they change them not because you didn't write something down in a drawing set or there's something that's undiscovered. And it also made us do really good diligence. Like we go out, we, you know, go to the site, do a little analysis. We dig to see where the foundations are. We do stuff that doesn't happen before contracts are signed in construction. And so we have way higher resolution idea of how much things cost and like what the actual barriers to building a residential project is. So it's been an amazing learning experience um, and doing so many projects at scale means we can learn. I think, I mean, I don't want to disrespect the vendors we're working with as much as a contractor can learn over a huge time period at once, right? We're learning across so many projects and they're all so similar that we're sort of getting an understanding that an architecture firm that's doing a custom project and isn't involved in the final cost side isn't going to get. And so we're like, okay, we standardize price, we standardize timing, we make a high quality product, it will sell itself. And in many ways it has, but we also have like a sales team, which is unusual for an architecture firm. We have a sales team and we do Google advertising and we have like a bunch of sales materials and we have a pipeline and a CRM and, you know, we have things we're selling customers on. So we are just essentially making it a business. Um, I think a lot of architecture firms are businesses, but they're not businesses. They're like the sort of lead prospecting is you apply to a lot of awards, you get some of the awards, people look you up an award show, or they see you in a design magazine, they reach out to you, you make your clients happy, which of course read, lose money so that they refer you to other clients. But Google ads work and I, it's dirty because you want to think that your work is more important than everyone else's work, but it's not true. It's maybe better. Like, right. It's, it's better in, in some sort of unobjective standard that we learn in architecture school. But you need, if you sell product, then you can determine what you want to build because you're funneling people into what your idea is instead of gathering someone and having to meet them halfway. And then you can start to standardize. You can start to uh, deliver a product consistently and scale it. It's interesting to think about it from that perspective of, of, you know, the sales team and the product, because there obviously is this kind of old school mentality of the, the one-off and the boutique firms and the very custom work. And the, obviously that's very much speaking to the elite kind of clientele you were talking about earlier. That's the 1%. I mean, and I think it's been shown from various things that I've seen that, that, the entire architectural industry is bought and paid for by the 1%, which basically says 99% is left on the table. Like there's, there's 99% of the rest of the world. And what you're doing is trying to address maybe not all of that, but some of that you're going outside of the 1% to find this. And I could see how some people would be threatened by that, 
but it's not threatening at all because it's not in the same 1% as everybody else who is a proper quote-unquote architect is going after. It's outside of that. Yeah, these are people who really wouldn't be able to afford an architect, or they would, and that architect would draw them like a line drawing to get a permit. And then it's just off to the races with them and a contractor. But I want to restart the podcast right now. That was my life story. And that's where we are today at Homestead. We've built a way to provide a fixed price added unit of housing to people's homes. I think to date we've worked with a 10%, upper 10% of homeowners instead of the upper 1%. But we are changing into something that's much bigger. We're building a development platform for every single homeowner to realize income out of their property they couldn't tap out. And we're literally there for 100% of homeowners in California. Yeah, so you you guys have a tagline on your site that says, turn your home into a homestead. Obviously, your, your name of your company is Homestead. So so give us an idea of how how did that happen? So there's there's this law about the, the AD, being able to build ADUs, but, but now with... I think it's SB9. There's like this, you can actually split the lot. And and what's interesting to me about what you're doing is that even with an ADU, you're still kind of under the aesthetic guidelines, potentially, I guess, of a of the owner. I mean, if you're productizing it to an extent, maybe you're giving them some options within a menu and not complete like say over over what this thing looks and feels like. But I would imagine that a lot split is an, is a different thing altogether because it it has bigger implications because you're actually splitting the lot you're actually dividing ownership to sell this other piece to someone else and therefore as kind of the professional with the vision you have more more say on the, in the balance of that equation than maybe even they do. Yes. Since day 1 and I think we talked about this in the nonprofit, we realized that you have to find an alternative source of money to build the project you want to and to create something new in the world that isn't just incredibly expensive development or chair charities, rough word, from the 1% or government funding. And we, as you saw, had some difficulties along the way. The first was with sort of cash flow timeline, as we would say in business, but as architects, we would say uh, project scope and length. And the second was with the homeowner financing. So what homeowners can afford, we are still very much linked to instead of the value of the 1%, how much money those 10% had. And so it's still a consumer product with a client. And yes, we have menus. We don't do totally custom design. It's very powerful to uh, be able to design projects. Like 100% of our projects are, well, if clients are listening, 100% of our projects are tailored to you. But 100% of our projects are finished designed by us, not by someone else. Well, and it's it's like the Tesla configurator on the website, right? Like, yeah, there's there's options, but it's but within a limited scope. Like, it's not just carte blanche. Right. But with this new asset, so yes, it's exactly right. With this new asset, it changes everything because we can build something as a speculative developer uh, without involving the homeowner's finances. So instead of it just being people with credit scores over 720 who, you know, less than 45% of their income is debt, which yeah. you'll probably know as a home buyer, but if not, guys, look out for that one day. It's what's stopping you from buying a home. <laughs> We're unlimited. Anyone who owns a home, if we can split their lot and there's some financial wizardry that we can avoid for the purposes of this conversation, 
we can create a whole new asset and make them hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, most importantly, architects listen to this show, we can build whatever architecture we want, so long as it's the architecture that sells for the most. Right. Uh, I wish we would say we're building affordable housing, but in reality, we're building, we're keeping members of the community who make, you know, $50,000 a year and got a home 40 years ago and would move. And if they moved, they would be able to buy into a similar community. We're keeping them in place and putting money in their hands instead of house flippers or, you know, speculative developers. It's a sweet spot. You have to hit that sweet spot because you are going into an existing location. Like you can't, it's not a total greenfield, right? So I can see how you guys have, uh, I'm sure you have weighted, <laughs> all kinds of weighted figures in that spreadsheet to make that work. Yes, exactly. But yes, that's correct. So there's all sorts of things that are going on. There's all sorts of, you know, we have like base for an architect. I think we call it uh, base topologies with different local layouts. And I think for a business person, I would say uh, automatic design and, you know, the, the, the reality lies in between. So we can sell contemporary architecture because it actually sells for the most on the open market, um, but is not dictated by a terrible spec developer or a client, we can actually build architecture that's pretty good. Um, we have some very talented architects who have worked at, you know, who lead our project. And one of them has worked, uh, one of them has worked at Herzog and Demarin and uh, Sean worked at Shigeru Bon. And so, or no, sorry, Atelier Bow Wow. So, you know, big name prestigious firms who are guiding the work of, you know, normal development. And they're seeing their products done at scale. I mean, 77 projects as an architect, imagine, that will actually touch real people and don't involve the sort of client choices that sort of ruin architectural projects. So Levittown plus design. And it, it finally works out, right? People do want contemporary homes now. Of course, if we're in a historic neighborhood or the homeowner has a say, we'll design a home to sort of blend in. Thank you, NIMBYs. But in general, it's a free architectural slate. Turning NIMBY into YIMBY. Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today. That's Enscape3D.com slash TRXL.
It's it's interesting to think about how you guys probably have, I mean, I'm projecting here like into maybe where the conversation goes, but I would imagine that you have insight into finding the right kinds of locations for your kinds of projects at some point. If you you can start identifying by location what's appropriate versus, you know, maybe someday down the road you can just cordon off areas and say, yeah, you know, maybe our product will develop to be able to go into areas like that or, or maybe not, but we're going to worry about the, we're going to focus on these areas first. And like you said earlier, you've got salespeople, you can start targeting because technology is so smart uh, that you can actually find the right eyeballs to see what you want to show them. Yeah, I mean, we can find out what a homeowner values in their yard based on the color of the satellite photo of that yard. If they have a gray yard, it means they're not using it, which means they probably have a full-time job or working two jobs, you know, pay for the family, take care of grandma. And so that yard doesn't matter that much to them. And it's a life-changing amount of money. I, sorry, we're code-switching between architecture and business pitching here i think this is exactly what has this is the exact kind of conversation that needs to happen more often out loud yeah right yeah yeah i i totally agree so like in la the median house price is approaching a million dollars but not only are home ownership rates quite high in la but they're very high in minority communities the home ownership rate for african americans in, in los angeles is higher than white people um and or Caucasians, whatever we call them. And so for BIPOC communities, this is a, like, it's like golden handcuffs because mm-hmm. if they move, they lose the community they've built. They make money, but they can't move back to the same community, right? Their home wasn't done up very nicely. They don't have a very high income. They're not going to be allowed to purchase the same value property by the sort of racist redlining and, and the bank issues and all sorts of things in our financial system. So they'll have to move away, right? The community will lose someone. It will gain a often white family that makes more money that will, you know, sort of complain about whatever in the community. And then that's how gentrification happens. We get the best of both worlds. Those homeowners get to stay in place. They get to make like up to a million dollars. Like an example neighborhood, Inglewood in uh, Los Angeles have seen house prices go from $400,000 in 2010 to a million dollars now it's historically an african-american community um and those community members are being pushed out because if you make sixty thousand dollars a year and your home can sell for a million dollars why would you stick around especially when you know every coffee shop is now costing six bucks and your children can't afford to buy a place there and then boom overnight uh, sb9 which allows you to split your lot i think i didn't give context here into two and build a new property exists, but you can't get the loan to do it. And so we arrive, we come, we split the lot, we take entire cost ownership of the project. And then at the sale, once we take our cost back, the homeowner gets 80% of the net profit. So in Inglewood, that's about $450,000 when it's all said and done. For a homeowner who makes maybe on average $60,000, it's a insane amount of money. It is, imagine if your liquid net worth for listeners, for architects, it's probably like goes up five times over a year. And you, I mean, look, you give up your backyard, but you get to enable the community to have more money. You get more money. That couple gets to move in without sort of dampening or diluting the community. 
um, and more housing is created. And ideally, we start to level out housing prices, right? So growth organically fills in these neighborhoods. I think it's optimistic to say prices will go down, but I think they can stop escalating. And most importantly, like the flywheel of unaffordability, where we once we displace people, then labor costs go up in the community. So then every, the price of everything goes up. And so it's more expensive, starts to slow down. And of course, again, from an architectural standpoint, it means that we get to create new and interesting things that integrate into community that often don't change the streetscape because we're usually in a backyard, but create architecture at scale. And we're talking in the thousands. Look, we've sold 77 projects over the course of a little little more than a year in operation. I'm confident with the team now that we could be selling just in these little backyard homes 150, and we're planning on selling much more for our lot split product. We already have 19 people signed up. And from those 19 people, we're creating like $14 million of income for those 19 people we project. Incredible. It, seem, it seems too like you are, because of the, obviously the new build, but also, you know, the aesthetics and the functionality and all these things, the, the sustainability, I'm sure, of the product itself raises the value of, of the entire neighborhood. But, but that original owner who owns the front lot is maybe now in the likely position of being the worst house in on the best street where they then can take some of that money back and, and inject it into their place. And some other startup who follows in your footsteps, they just follow you around everywhere you do a project and they, they do that project for that homeowner and raises that up. And, and the whole neighborhood is winning then because these investments are, the trajectory is just upward, upward, upward. Yeah. I mean, I, we, that's exactly what we dream and hope of, right? We really think that it's, it's going to be totally game changing. We just need to convince communities that to trust us, which is always difficult. I think, um, there aren't, there are very huge problems around white saviors. I mean, we're a diverse company, but I'm, I'm the figurehead. And it's also a lot to give up part of your property, like to, a you know, a newcomer to build a speculative home but we really don't incur the risk of speculative building because we don't purchase the land because the build price is half what the home exit value is going to be so there's no risk of the homeowner losing their home not only because it's own lot but because home prices if they collapse more than 50 percent there's a society-wide problem that we'd have in exception to construction costs and you know, it's a windfall of money. And I think it seems too good to be true. I mean, you do lose something, you do lose part of your property. But uh, just explaining that is going to be a a long road. But I think once we do, we're going to change everything in the state of California. And I really hope that states that are starting to see home prices go wild, you know, Austin, Texas went from one of the more affordable cities in the United States to now being one of the least affordable when you adjust for median income, despite things being cheaper than LA and New York. Atlanta, all these cities are sort of running out of runway to keep expanding and be livable, but they have so much extra space on the inside. And so I hope this law propagates much like ADU laws have, and we can sort of fix America through infill. Of course, I I don't actually think the solution to affordable housing is to build tiny homes everywhere. I think it's to build very large apartment complexes and densify cities. But if I'm a pragmatic person with open eyes, that is never going to happen in America. It's not. A, it's a political non-starter in terms of subsidies. It's a political non-starter in terms of big towers and built-in racism. 
And so we have to think of another way. And I think this is a law that we've closest. ADUs were good, but the same income issues we talked about were there. And this is this is game changing. I, well, I, I would like to switch gears a little bit here. And as much as you're willing, I'd love to talk about you said you have a sales team. Like you said you have architects. Like how are you organizing your business? Um I don't necessarily want to say as opposed to a traditional office. I think it'll be obvious once you once you kind of talk about how, how you guys are working. But I'm 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 interested to see where do you guys draw the line at total turnkey solution versus you know, like I don't I don't imagine you guys are doing the, the construction yourself. So that that's kind of what I'm trying to get a feel for. Yeah. So we're doing construction management. That will change as we get bigger. We will do less of that. But we're also like at the point where we're scanning every construction site and checking that with our Revit models. So we're trying to do remote quality management. And we, you know, I mean, everyone has material takeoffs, but through our material suppliers, you know, down to the knobs, down to the hardware poles, we have materials that we can, if there's a supply chain shortage, though not true on two projects right now that we did the old way, uh, we can swap out, you know, the best material. So we're really changing like efficiency in construction. There's no contractor running off to get one part um, at Home Depot the right parts show up and that's, you know, our, our builds happen up to five times faster than the LA average for ADUs in that space. So there is some relation with construction. Are you guys actually using the same contractors over and over again? So you build this rapport and you build like the systems. Okay. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. So maybe not a very good interviewee, but I'll no, try and perfect. rein yeah. it in. <laughs> no worries. So the, Business is not envisioned as an architecture firm. We care a lot about architecture. So we want to create a product. And the product is developing your home or service. It depends what, how you see it. But we like to think of it like a tech company, like a large company. It's like, how can we define something so that the homeowner is very happy with the experience? And also, we are not scrambling to change things every single day. We are selling to what we have and not selling to whatever the person wants. And so what we are is a sales and financial facilitation platform that uses architecture to realize that uh, monetary gain for homeowners. Yeah. Architecture is your strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Previously, it was ADUs. We developed a product that homeowners wanted that could create them more money. And the main issue is that the customer type was still relatively demanding because they still thought of us as architects. And we've done an incredible job in the last few months to sort of cut that off, right? We are just, we are Homestead, we are an ADU, and now we're just a infill development platform. You get these finished packages, these upgrades cost this much money, and we'll put in a floating shelf or something like that, but there's no custom work. You can't recycle a refrigerator, nothing like that. So what that just means is having a product that's super defined and architects, this does not mean that every building has to be the same. This means that the objects that you fill the building with are standardized so you don't spend the entirety of your project trying to find a cabinet pull, which no one will notice in the future. You get to spend it on floor plan, layout, and sort of thinking about light. If you're an architect, or for us, you get to spend it on doing the next project and defining the product and finding a way for people to be able to buy the product. This is so underappreciated in architecture. When you buy a car, 
no one buys a car. No one has $50,000, right? You lease a car. And that's the same with architecture. Someone gets a loan. But if you're not cluing yourself into the financing process, you are missing out as an architect. Contractors have figured it out. And I would say they are as far behind the rest of the world as other industries. When you go check out your computer, there's a little Affirm or whatever service that says, hey, do you want to make this in monthly payments? You should be intimately involved with how much this project is going to cost a homeowner on a month-by-month basis, because that is a point in which you can sell them your architectural vision. So for us, it's selling them upgrades and also saying, look, if you're renting this, it's going to be this much more money if you do this. And we're starting to actually be able to get data on the actual numbers, but they exist in the, in the world. If you go find them, there's a good Harvard study. And so for you as an architect, for the listeners of this podcast, can be like, oh, I want to do a cantilever. <laughs> and you can say, oh, it only costs X more dollars for you to look out onto this view. Or, you know, there's that Herzog de Mern project where you have that swing set. To have a swing set into the abyss, it costs you this much dollars monthly. Instead of it costs three hundred thousand dollars which is a whole different thing yeah because then it just becomes about it just becomes a no instantly right because exactly. that's it's that's money i have to spend right now it's like well of course it isn't but nobody actually brings that fact up <laughs> it's like well yeah that's how much it costed it's a first cost but it isn't because it's it's spent over time like you're talking about architects handy math for you although lending rates are going to change now 30-year mortgage or 30-year refi Every $10,000 is 45 bucks. Just think about selling that. Hey, skip a few coffees for one meal a month and you get a sub-zero fridge, right? I mean, as architects, I hope you're dealing with more important things. But, you know, heated floors, this clear story window, this sort of beautiful facade material that'll last you 100 years, right? It'll increase the resale value of your home. And I think we're like, think that's kind of poisonous to talk about money, but the homeowner is thinking about money the whole time and it's stopping you from realizing your vision. It's ruining your promotional photos that like when you look back on your life and you open up your book, you're like, oh, if only the client had did this. If only you told the client this costs $45 more a month and that it would increase their home value X so much. You know, this photo in this architectural magazine and, you know, I think we can be creative about how we ascribe value to that. You know, I think most homeowners would spend $45 more in a month to be in Dwell. I know it really motivated one of the homeowners we worked with and we got them in Dwell. So <laughs> value value added service right there. So so let's let's go back to this idea of it does all all of the, the projects don't have to look the same. I, you know, like you, you said, you can fill the project with all the same things. You can have all the same touch points. Like you're sourcing, you're figuring stuff out to that degree so that you have consistency, but so you also know, you, you just know that that's what's going to be in the project. But as far as it does come to layout and the plan and the, the elevate, all of these other things that architects worry about, I would imagine there's, a, there's quite a bit of variation because you're not getting the same lot over and over and over again. So how tweakable do you guys find yourselves having to be when it comes to these products? We're both... For the investors and business people out there, we're both totally standardized. Our design process takes about one hour of in-house work. And this is, and like, you can go online, you can see our units, www.homestead.is. Unfortunately, they're all squares now because they were garage conversions until 
recently when we started doing ground up projects, they do not all look the same. Well, the ones online do, but they don't, they're not all the same. The layouts are different. What's in them is different. Kitchens look different. Everything is kind of different, but they don't take that long to design and they are better than what's out there. It takes about an hour to three hours of in-house design time. And then the rest is a really beautiful Revit model that we've built that a third-party drafter executes. And then we review it to make sure everything's okay. Architects, you are spending so much of your time doing something that is not value creating. And you need to focus on the value creation side, which is the quote-unquote customization for the client which you can standardize in the back end, designing something actually to the site instead of designing, you know, rewriting your detail library every single time. And, you know, the things that matter to homeowners, layout experience, they care about architectural things, but they're thinking about it through a value optimization language. And you're thinking about it through like your vision usually, and you're not talking about the same thing. And you can just make them talk about the same thing. You can reconfigure what you're talking about to be in value creation, which is a little bit painful, but it doesn't have to be true interiorly when you present the project to someone else who's an architect, you don't have to say, and we were trying to increase the home value this much at $45 a month for that 10,000 bucks. You meet the homeowner where they are and you don't have to meet them with like this sort of incongruous language where a homeowner wants like this box here and it really matters to them. I want my kitchen to have this X thing and it ruins what you're doing and it's not better for them in the long term, right? As an architect, you've done enough projects, you know, it's a bad design idea. Don't talk to them about design. Say, hey, this isn't increasing the value of your home. And look at this other alternative that I want that's better. And I think that's like what we learned through sales. It's like you are actually going to create something better for the client, right? No one wants to create, you want to create your vision and you know it's the best because you spent your whole life building it out. You spent your whole life learning the profession. And then you're going to get derailed by someone's whim. Don't. Plan your sale. Everything's a pitch, right? Work to what you want and then sell to that process. I think a lot of architects think that sales is a dirty word. Like they don't feel like design is sales where some of that pushback comes from. Yeah, and that's bad. That's that's very bad because I am pay, I know not everyone's favorite architect, but a very good architect. And if you revisit his work, very impressive. Total salesperson. Rem, in a way, is his own salesperson. You know, he has stopped designing for a while now, but he's trotted out to do his whole song and dance where the diagrams, diagrams were a sales technique, right? Reconfigured as, you know, talking about program, but it's like, a language that normal people can understand that business people can understand. It's a PowerPoint, this, 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 right. I want to make this giant box that I throw wherever I want and look at this diagram. It makes sense. Like the Seattle library. Yeah. I'm sure that pitch went amazingly. Yeah. And I mean, that's a crazy building. It's awesome. It is not price efficient at all. And it's just, there was a PowerPoint that was like, well, it's obvious that you want to put these blocks, blocks here. And then the lay people were like, yes, yes right? It wasn't about architectural expression, I'm sure. Um, Maybe the two people on the board were excited by what it looked like, but it it sort of hit a language people can understand. And so going back to talking about money or sales, it's like, if you talk to them in your language, you can get exactly what you want. If you, you talk to them in your language, you'll get nothing that you want. 
It's that simple. So other layers on top of this, I, I'm just curious, and maybe we'll wrap it up with with this, and because I think what you guys are doing is fascinating, is when it comes to communicating your design, I mean, obviously you're talking through a lot of this and you're talking in ways that you feel like are really connecting with the person who is the other half of this project. I'm wondering, like, how do you visually communicate your your stuff from a, I don't know, architect, traditional architectural standpoint? I mean, is it is it VR? Is it 3D? Is it plans? Is it is it just pointing at pictures of other projects? Like, how do, how do you guys go about that? Yeah, so it was an interesting back and forth. You know, we can use Enscape, we can live model, we could use VR if you want. I think that's all a mistake. Here's why. If people can understand 90% of what it's going to look like, they have opinions on how to change it. I think that photos... <laughs> so you, your your strategy is withholding. <laughs> don't yeah. go too far. Photos and floor plans are great. And if, if people don't understand floor plans. Someone's going to try and sell you very expensive visualization software. Renders are amazing. Specific renders are bad because then the customer has a very specific vision of what it's going to look like and they have notes. No, I think architects experience that all the time, right? Like there's so many times where you've got your model all figured out and then you turn off all the textures and show them the foam core version because you don't want to focus on materials yet. You want to focus on the space. So I think architects are kind of used to that, but this is really kind of nailing that point with the actual person who's going to be spending the money. Yes. I, I think it's a huge mistake to engage in such high resolution detail. It would be like if you walked a parent through their kid's college education costs by withdrawing money from the bank slowly <laughs> or like took them to a series of classes and like, Oh, none of the kids show up because they're drinking the whole time. It would be much more damning than, you know, your beautiful glossy materials that abstractly talk about college. Don't talk about this class schedule or these assignments. It's like this student did this. I think that, those architecture school techniques of under underrepresenting are super important. And so we have the technology to literally show the homeowner exactly what's getting built. Right. Like as I said, down to, to our detriment, goals. you're saying though. Yeah. To our detriment. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to do it if you want to control the product. And for architects, that's about a vision, right? It's about quality for us. It's about keeping quality as well, right? Our products, someone else shows up. The, they can say, oh, this is a homestead product that's done well, um, and it makes sense. And so that's it. I mean, I, one of our designers just popped out of her sound booth. She's being a client. And that client's getting two hours with her this whole time, right? And then she's doing about an hour of design work. And the client's going to be very happy, very, very happy. And we get to build what we want. So... I love it. You, you're, we're ending this with a smile on your face. You, I, it's so exciting to hear what you're doing. And, and what I love is that you're so willing to share this because I don't think you're too concerned with competition. Like, obviously, it took a lot to get where you are, and it would be hard to replicate. It would take a lot of effort at a minimum. But at the same time, we're talking about such a huge chunk of the architectural building industry that there's room for a lot of people here. This is a huge problem. You're focusing right now in LA and California. This needs to happen everywhere. And I think that's even even bigger point worth making at the end here is like this actually is a fantastic development idea that you've put into place. This startup is 
is amazing and it needs to happen everywhere. It needs to happen at scale. And it would be incredibly hard for you as Homestead maybe to do that now. And I, I certainly hope you have plans to go there in the future, but you probably never even have to leave California. Yeah, we do have plans to expand in the future. I think what you can take from us is that if you invest two months into building a, like if you do an architecture school thing and you have clients, well, hmm, you know what? I don't want to, I don't want to make messages here. Find clients, sell them the vision you want, and then build the system to get there with your first set of clients and just keep on building that backbone system until it does become a product. And I don't think you'll be able to find the venture capital or the financing stuff to do what we can do, but you can build a customer base of, it's no big deal to do five houses a year instead of two if you have a system and you have a sales ability and you can be the sales team, right? CRMs are very cheap. They're $20 and create a mailing list. It's not expensive to do. Take a few classes on sale and get to part of the way there. Or go whole hog, find an investor, set the whole thing up. Well, his name is Sam Schneider. This is Homestead. And uh, Sam, where can people find out more about what you guys are doing? Where can they follow along your journey online? Yeah, you can go to www.homestead.is, which we thought was very clever at the time to have us homestead is and then a slash and then something afterwards. Terrible idea. Get a .com or a .io or whatever. Thank you, Iceland, though, for being such a good domain host. So www.homestead.is. You can also just Google Samuel Schneider MIT. A bunch of uh, results will pop up. If you want to know more about me or Sean Phillips, the other co-founder, or uh, Ian, and uh, you know, give me give me a uh, give me an email. Uh, shoot something to connect at homestead.is, and I'll try to find some time to talk in the ten minute range. So not this hour long, but I'm happy to help anyone who wants to come up in general. Well, luckily, you won't have to repeat what's going on, what happened in this hour, because it'll be available in perpetuity for everybody. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. It was wonderful. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Evan. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.